Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we are set to continue our reflections and teaching into the book of Genesis, chapter 31. Yesterday evening, I left off with, what, a reading of verses 22 to 32. And so what I want to do is jump into those verses. I'll do a quick reread of those verses because I want to talk about fear. And then we are going to get into verses 33 to 42 to talk about how to handle being accused of something you didn't do. <laughs> All right. So like I have said on so many occasions, the book of Genesis affords us the opportunity to think critically about just not all of these great patriarchal covenants, but more specifically and even intimately in how God communicates with man and in turn how man responds to God and what we can learn in that finite detail, what we can learn when we take a closer look into human nature as it is revealed in the book of Genesis. So with that, verses 22 to 32. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Take heed that you say not a word to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen encamped in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? that you have cheated me and carried away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and cheat me and did not tell me that so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Take heed that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Any one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen him. Okay, so... Before we jump into that verse, verse 31, and focus on this element of fear, it is interesting in a rereading of this <laughs> this morning, the last question from Laban there, and now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my God? So for all of these questions, for, for everything that you have done, Jacob, why did you do that? You know, have you ever been in a situation where... You've asked a great number of questions to someone. And in the end, it was really the last question that you asked that was at the heart of your own inner turmoil. Remember, <laughs> Laban is one who is caught up in this practice of divinization. We talked yesterday about these 
uh, idols, these cultic figures. You see, my friends, <laughs> what you feed grows. The more you do something, the more you're going to want to do that thing. Whether it is vice or virtue, that is a principle of human nature. Consider what was closest to Laban. His concern about uh, his relationship with his children, sure, yeah, that was there. But <laughs> why my gods? You see, my friends, Laban was attached to the practice of his divinization more than anything else. And that, I do believe, is striking. Because in the end, as we are reminded in the book of Genesis and all throughout the Old Testament, those gods which we hold high and dear, beyond and before the one true God, strange gods indeed they are. Because from a distance, once you've overcome those addictions, you look back on those attachments, those former addictions, and you say, gosh, that was strange. But we are reminded of our humanity and praise God for God's mercy. Huh? Okay. Now, <laughs> verse 31. Jacob answered Laban, because I was afraid. The point we ended on yesterday evening was that Jacob does not answer the accusation of stealing. Rather, he, he states the reason why he fled in secret. Jacob does not even know that the idols have been stolen. If he did, he, he probably wouldn't have thrown Rachel under the bus, which he did by calling out the culprit, by promising death to the culprit. What is going on in this verse? Well, let us first say this about fear itself. We often think that things like hate, revulsion, and disgust are the polar opposite to love. But brothers and sisters in Christ, they are not. As we've touched upon it before, these feelings and emotions of hate, revulsion, and disgust are only a byproduct of something else. And that something else is what? But namely, fear, if it is not shame. And the good Lord is well aware of this much deeper reality. That the opposite of love is not hate, revulsion, disgust, but fear. Or again, maybe even shame. One ought to be mindful of the first homily ever spoken on the Judean hill country surrounding that little town of Bethlehem given by the angel Gabriel. What was at the core of that first homily? Fear not. Fear not. A phrase that has echoed up and down sacred scripture. This was not a call that was new per se. It just had a different context for Mary, right? You see, my friends, when a being from a higher dimension breaks into our world, he typically says, what but do not be afraid. And is not fear then the fundamental problem? Fear is what undergirds most forms of human dysfunction. Because we are afraid, we crouch protectively around ourselves. Because we are afraid, we lash out at each other in violence. Because we are afraid, we could say that we cease to be the person that God is calling us to be. And so we ask the question, what overcomes this fear but the presence of God? And we ask another question, what accompanies this presence but the renewed confidence that God will be there for us when we need him most? Okay, Incidentally, my friends, the Bible never says, uh, just figure it out. 
But over and over again, God says to man, trust me, trust God. Essentially, I've already got it all figured out, right? And isn't this at the heart of our faith? Because if fear is the opposite to love, and the unwillingness to abandon ourselves is the opposite to the great vocation to trust in God, then this is the great topic that we need to be spending extra time with. There's a reason why this is a reoccurring theme in sacred scripture. Jacob was afraid. He was afraid. Now, earlier I said shame because as discussed in, in previous programming in particular, I'm reminded of several conversations I've had with Father Mike Ritter. Shame tends to undergird our fears. You see, we fear that our weaknesses might be exposed. So shame becomes a part of what makes up this fear. I mean, what does Paul say? I boast in my weakness because it is there where I am strongest, because it is there where I lean into God the most. Oh, that human tendency to just kind of trust ourselves, right, when we have it all figured out. <laughs> have you ever been there? Now, all that being said, what does this have to do with Jacob? Well, fear has not allowed him to fully listen. Again, my friends, as we just talked about, he never answered the question. Have you ever been in a situation before where we are in a conversation with someone and so preoccupied with all the things that we want to say that are caught up in our own shame or fear, we don't actually listen? This is what's going on here. Or maybe you've been on the other side of it. Maybe you're talking with a close friend and you notice your close friend not really listening to you. Take stock in what we are talking about now. Often, it has very little to do with, with you and, and, and how you're saying it and what you're saying, and more about your friend's preoccupation that is probably tied to some aspect of shame or fear. I believe this to be such a, a fascinating back and forth between Laban and Jacob because Scripture even has to say in verse 32, now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Hey, he wasn't paying attention. He just didn't know because he wasn't paying attention. And this, my friends, should not be so far-fetched from us because this is what we encounter all the time. I know we've touched upon some of this subject matter before, but in the realm of reinforcement, and at the same time, what's new within that reinforcement, I thought it'd be necessary to highlight what might be going on between Jacob and Laban. All right, verses 33 to 42. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent, remember her? <laughs> and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat upon them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and upbraided Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin? That you have hotly pursued me. 
Although you have felt through all of my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your she-goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. Of my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Okay. <laughs> Jacob takes issue with how he has been treated. Right? This is clearly what is going on in these verses. He has officially taken issue with the way in which he has been treated, with the way in which he has been unjustly accused. So the question before us is, how are we to handle what it means to be unjustly accused? Uh, this is a question that I want to respond to within the context of those all-important spiritual works of mercy. Because I do think, to some degree, this brings us back to that great work of mercy, bearing wrongs patiently, which, as Monsignor Pope notes, the great uh, author of the, on the spiritual life, is the most revolutionary of the spiritual works of mercy. Why? Because, my friends, it is the one most tied directly to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to follow Monsignor Pope's lead here with his treatment on this great spiritual work of mercy, bringing back some things we've already talked about, but at the same time being present to what's going on between Jacob and Laban. First of all, it is to say that, yeah, <laughs> to decide to bear wrongs patiently is nothing short of declaring a revolution and to wage a paradoxical counteroffensive against the world and its economy of anger. We've talked about fear, but what about anger? You see, this is a topic that we have touched upon before because it is a human emotion that we are battling all the time. And we are battling this all the time because of the way in which Satan uses it. You see, there is a cycle of violence and retribution in which the devil seeks to engage us. And that cycle begins with one person harming or slighting another, perhaps tempted to do so by the devil or by the world or by the flesh. And then the harm having been worked, the victim retaliates. And what happens when the victim retaliates? The problem escalates. Meanwhile, <laughs> Satan observes from the wings with delight as he reaps his bountiful harvest of anger. And we can also say fear, right? And inside of anger are those emotions of bitterness and violence. Those emotions which bring down friendships, those emotions which bring down families, culture, and even nations. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It doesn't take much imagination to apply that to what is going on today. Whether you embrace Trump or not, you are experiencing something passionate. You can't be vengeful towards Trump with all of this bitterness because then you only fall into Satan's trap. And that's a very dangerous reality. To be so fed up with a politician, right or wrong, to then launch in this bitterness, this anger, this vengeance, and, and thinking to yourself, well, I'm justified because what he did was wrong. When really, maybe we didn't give any careful consideration into what he actually did. I think that's so important. And we're going to talk more about that here in a bit. So anger, uh, fear, bitterness, violence, this is Satan's economy. And its currency is a retaliating anger, fear, bitterness, and violence. You see, Satan would have us develop grievances. And as Monsignor Pope writes, <laughs> a fear that fills our coffers with memories of past wrongs, stretching back as far as our memory can take us. Brothers and sisters, so clever are Satan's minions and, and marketers of this economy that those who are consumers and suppliers think their vengeance is righteous. This is what I'm talking about. Even holy. And so the economy of Satan grows and grows and grows, bankrolled by vengeance, bankrolled by bitterness, bankrolled by these broken emotions. And into this economy steps the Christian who bears wrongs patiently, who patiently engages in the revolutionary act of saying, even if on a small scale, the cycle of violence, the cycle of anger, the cycle of retribution ends with me. No longer will I feed into this anger. No longer will I give in to this vengeance and so on and so forth. This is the paradox, the revolutionary act that we see on the cross, where Christ won by bearing patiently and bravely the venom of the adversary. Until the very end, he bore it not by retaliating, not by hating, but by loving and enduring unto the end. He transforms, if you will, this venom, this poison into a great antidote of brokenness, of broken relationships. Every Christian who bears wrongs patiently increases the size of that cross, the cross that our Lord was crucified on, exponentially. Because every Christian who bears wrongs patiently imitates him perfectly. And once again, as we follow Monsignor Pope's lead on this reflection, as he notes, hey, consider the logic of this revolution, right? Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do that. Pride cannot drive out pride. Only humility can do that. And thus Jesus and every Christian who bears wrongs patiently drives out darkness by light, hatred by love, and pride by humility. We need to hear these words again and again and again. Because clearly, as sacred scripture reminds us, <laughs> we forget. Because seemingly, as we go through 
the narrative of salvation history as it comes to us in the book of Genesis, we see these patriarchs falling into the same trap, this same vicious economy, which has no regard for healthy relationships with one another. Now, an important question here is, and certainly it comes up, is this call we have to bear wrongs patiently absolute? Mm, not necessarily. Why? Because there are times when we must defend ourselves and others. When the only way to repel the grave harm caused by a serious injustice is to disable it and remove it. We are to disable and remove the great injustice of the Holocaust of abortion. We don't tolerate that. By the way, the word tolerance uh, comes from a Latin word that means to put up with. <laughs> so next time you talk about tolerance as this great virtue, just remind yourself that you are espousing towards this virtue that speaks to putting up with someone. We don't, we don't want to be put up with. We want to be embraced. We want to be loved. So yes, there are times when we must actively resist evil and stand in its way. But in all of this, retaliation must not be our goal. Rather, our goal is always justice, established again in love and respect with a desire to end the cycle, not merely to continue it as the victor. Ha ha, I won. No, 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 that's not what this is about. Evil is always to be resisted and robbed of further prey. If I seek to conquer and destroy evil, too easily, if it's without discernment, I can become the very evil that I seek to destroy. Even as I declare my victory, the evil still lives to strike again, but now it lives in my own heart. So again, the Christian who bears wrongs patiently says, in effect, it ends with me. The cycle of violence and revenge ends with me. And my dear friends, if you are about to lose your patience with someone, maybe it might help to think about how God has been patient with you, right? Certainly, this has helped me. All right, probably should say something about forgiveness here because on the hills of this great work of mercy is the merciful gift of forgiving offenses willingly. Forgiveness is a work of mercy that is often misunderstood. You know, many people interpret forgiveness as a work they must do out of their own power rather than a, a gift to be received from God. But my friends, once again, as we have underscored in the past, forgiveness is a work of God within us, right? Whereby God acts to free us from the poisonous effects of bitterness and grief that often accompany the harm that was inflicted upon us. Once we allow God in, the bitterness and grief over time begins to dissipate. Time is our ally if we let God in. You and I both know that a year and a half can go by and it seems like a day. Why? Because we have not let go of the pain. And unknowingly, at the same time, we have not let go of time itself. What do I mean? We say time stands still when we are in the presence of our beloved. And sure, yeah, that's true. But time also stands still when we are holding on to the past, when we are holding on to a grudge. Our Lord is not a God who holds grudges. And so we should not hold grudges. If you had a friend once upon a time, a year, year and a half, two, three, four, five years ago, and, and you have not talked to them, and every time you see them, something inside of you just wells up. Brothers and sisters in Christ, 
We cannot allow other people's weakness to dictate how we are called to love, but enter into the transforming, powerful, dynamic love of God and let him do his work. My dear friends, we cannot change the past. We cannot change what has happened. Too many of us think that ruminating over past hurts will somehow change what has happened or even get back at the other person. It will not, it won't, it can't. Clinging to our hurt and anger, understandable though it may be, only harms us. Forgiveness is for us as much as it is for others. When God calls us to forgive, God is offering us the gift to be free of the great deal of poison and and costly emotional state that robs us of our joy and our strength. What do we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 18? If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Hear Paul's words. Hear that great exhortation and challenge. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You can't control your friend, your beloved, if you are at odds with them. But do everything in your power, Paul's saying. Never take, as he goes on to say in this verse, your own revenge. Leave that room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Paul says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now, As we talk about this on the heels of Jacob and Laban, we do so because what happens in verses 43 to 55, Laban and Jacob make a covenant. And this will be our point of exploration next week. Jacob and Laban enter into this relational dynamic that I have been talking about this evening. And it's a very important lesson for all of us because as we've talked about fear and anger and and what to do with these emotions, it does point to something outside of you and I, and that is the powerful love of God, that covenant love of God, which is illustrated in the rest of chapter 31 and our point of departure next week. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.